So, not to put you on the spot or anything, but would you say that you're keeping up to date with what's going on in international education? David and I are the first to admit that we're a little bit out of the loop. Today, we brought on a guest who has her finger firmly on the pulse of what's going on with international schools. Dr. Heather Nero joined us from Abidjan, Côte d'Ivoire, to help us get a better handle on the current state of international education. Heather provided insights into how the international schooling landscape has changed in the past few years, how schools can shift to being genuine learning communities of innovative practices, the importance of systematizing and sustaining new practices, the ever-growing numbers of new international schools, the increasing variety and competition they bring to the scene, and how this affects recruiting, the current demographics of international educators, factors affecting staff turnover in schools, characteristics of top-tier international high schools, and for this, she drew from her own doctoral dissertation, which, by the way, is available on our website, and the current state of staff hiring at lower-tier schools. Our guiding question was, what are some big-picture changes in international education from the past few years, and what are some significant trends you see forming? This episode was recorded on January 26, 2023. Let's dive in. Heather, welcome back to the show, and we know you've been doing a lot of traveling, so where in the world are you now? Thank you, David. I am now back in Abidjan, Côte d'Ivoire, and I've been back here for exactly a week. That's awesome. So how did the recruiting go? Well, funny you should ask, because the recruiting was amazing. I loved being face-to-face, and as of today, this afternoon actually, we are finished with our recruiting, so we are fully staffed. Yay! Congratulations. Thanks. That's fantastic. Uh, and you were saying off mic that you had to add a number of resource people, and that must take some doing. Yes, we have gone from one learning support teacher to four next year in the lower school. And so we're really dedicated to inclusivity and making sure that all of our students are supported. That's just fantastic. So wondering if you have any kind of going global story for us today. So speaking of learning support, I am off next week to South Africa, Johannesburg, for the Asenia Africa Conference. So there'll be people coming from all over Africa, even Europe, and I think some people as far away as Asia are coming to the Asenia conference this year. It is a face-to-face conference. It's the second face-to-face conference this year for Senia. So I am super excited to be there with people learning about the latest philosophies in learning support, how we can support our children so that they can be successful. As I said earlier, we went from one to four learning support teachers. So obviously this is something that is really important to us here at ICSA. And uh, that's the one that Lori Ball puts together, right? Yes. So Lori Bull, you and David worked with in Riyadh many years ago. So we were all together in the same school. So Lori puts that together and her assistant used to work with me in Thailand. So it's a whole group of us getting together. And then we're headed off on safari after the conference because I have a week off and they're taking a few extra days to enjoy South Africa. Which is just fantastic. And Dave and I keep commenting on the whole thing of connection, connection, connection. That is just such a huge bonus that people don't necessarily talk about, but it's a fantastic benefit of teaching overseas. Yes. And what a nice bonus that you're going to be able to not only get together with your friends, but travel with them and have that incredible experience of going on safari. So super cool. Another example of why it's great to be an international educator. All right. So Heather, We have some big questions for you again, and we really appreciate that you're willing to sit down with us and give it a go. So we have a two-part guiding question. The first part is, 
What are some big picture changes in international education from the last few years? And the second one is what are some significant trends that you see forming? So to break this down a little bit, Audrey's going to get us started. So the first sub-question is, how has the international schooling landscape changed in the past few years? So I think with the expansive growth of international schools, you know, I mentioned that last time that when all of us went overseas, there were less than a thousand international schools. And we're looking at in 2024, I've got the numbers today, 12,334 schools are projected based on the ICS research. So that's a lot of schools in a 30-year. That's amazing. Right? 30-year time frame. So some of the things that we're experiencing is recruiting has become much more difficult. And I know we'll talk about that a little bit later, but that's one area. The other area that I've been very focused on, and that started when I was working on my PhD We were working on talking about intercultural competence and being competent as an educator. And that is the focus on DEIJ, diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. And that is very important in international schools right now, making sure we include all of those aspects in our hiring, in our curriculum, in everything that we do throughout the school. And the final thing that I think since uh, COVID is that parent expectations have changed. I have parents often coming up to me and saying, well, we're going on vacation for a week. Can my child just zoom into the class? Mm -hmm. And at our school, no, we don't do that. There's no hybrid learning anymore. We are face-to-face and the purpose of being face-to-face is so kids can learn with other kids in the classroom with a teacher. So we don't recommend that, but there's been a lot more requests for that because we did go to a online learning environment. Yeah, it goes against what we talk about with feeling, all of us strongly believing that face-to-face is the best type of education. Yes. So let's riff on that one a little bit because coming into the show, I've been reading a little bit about some schools trying to find a niche where they potentially are offering some full online learning for some students that might not be located there They really want to attend that school, but they can't or for whatever reason. And then there's the hybrid version where let's say there's an outbreak of COVID and one class closes down and they need to be working at home. They can't come in. So I'm wondering if you're seeing any trends there besides the case you're giving where the parents are saying, why can't Junior just skip out on a week and learn online because we're traveling to blank and blank? So are you seeing anything there between hybrid and full online learning being offered by some schools? I have seen some schools offering a full online learning, but I don't think they're getting the same experience as somebody face-to-face. One of the areas that I believe strongly in, and I've been working with this in many schools, is that social-emotional learning. Doing an online or even a hybrid situation, you are missing out on that social-emotional piece. Kids need to learn those social skills. They need to be able to interact with other children, be able to make mistakes, be able to get into an argument with a child and learn how to resolve that. And when you're just online, it doesn't happen. So are they getting the same quality of education? No, in my opinion, definitely not. I think that we need to get away from that. We did that during COVID because it was a necessity. We had to. The whole world shut down. Now we don't need to. Children need to be with other children. And I was into in a second grade class the other day and we were talking about respect. And I said, for me as a parent as well, I I was never worried about math or, or reading or writing, but I was very worried about my children's social skills. And we call them at our school life skills. Those life skills, which includes respect and critical thinking and all of that is so much more important than math, reading and writing, because we know they will all get that math, reading and writing. But if you're not able to be a good person in society, that's going to be a harder thing. So those life skills, we put a huge emphasis of that at our school right now. It's very important. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And like you said, you just there's no real way to learn those skills online. Absolutely true. 
So let's pivot to a multi-part question and I'll ask it in parts. It's a curriculum question. And the first part is, how do schools make the shift to being genuine learning communities of innovative practices? So this is a great question because I think at the forefront of all of this, in order to move forward and, and create those learning communities, and many schools call them professionally learning communities, and they exist everywhere, you have to have a culture of collaboration and trust. If you don't have that at your school, you're not going to be able to move forward to be able to look at, you know, what is innovation? There are lots of ways we talk about project-based learning. We talk about product-oriented learning. There's lots of different ways that children can learn these days. But in order to do that, you have to have a faculty that feels comfortable with one another, are willing to take those risks to learn together. So if you're not a collaborative school and you cannot trust one another, I think that's a real downfall. We need to really ensure that is happening. One of the things at my current school at ICSA that enticed me to come here is that our mission statement is learning and leading in a collaborative culture. That's it. And that, I think, sums up what all schools should be doing. So in order to get to those innovative practices, we need to have that collaboration and trust in place first. That sounds fabulous. I really like that simple and yet important mission. Tell us a little bit more about the trust. How do you make that happen or work towards that? So the trust is based, in my opinion, on the relationships. Mm -hmm. So I remember many years ago, and especially when I was working in China way back in the 90s, you know, they always said the golden rule, you know, treat everybody the way you want to be treated. And I totally disagree with that. <laughs> we need to understand each person mm -hmm. and we need to treat people the way they want to be treated. Mm -hmm. And especially in the role as a school leader, it's really up to me to understand each and every teacher because different teachers have different needs. Some teachers need me to check in on them all the time and, and work with them and talk to them and make sure everything's okay. Other teachers need that autonomy and say, you know what, run with it, go. But it's listening to your faculty and creating that trust. I'll give you an example of today, for instance, I had another teacher that came in and said, you know what, Heather, we need to work on this and that and a bunch of things that we need to work together towards this. And I said, you know what, great idea. Let's do it. Let's move. How can you help me? And it's allowing teachers to speak up, mm -hmm. to be able to make the school a better place. And creating that trust begins with getting to know people. And for, as an administrator, it's knowing the teachers. I also get to know the parents and the students, but for me, the big part is the teachers and what do they need to bring to the table to create that trust. That's excellent. It sounds as though that was also something that was part of your teaching, you know, getting to know each student and their learning strengths and areas for growth and all of that. It sounds like a similar kind of process. I guess I just would like to add a little piece too that I'm sure you will agree with is the trust gives people the confidence to try new things and make mistakes and not feel like they're going to be judged for it. I'm guessing that goes along with it too. Yes. And if I can draw all of us, all three of us back to something that I remember like yesterday, Dennis Larkin was our new head of school in Riyadh. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first thing he did, he gave us a ticket mm -hmm. and he said, this ticket is to allow you to fail. Mm -hmm. Because the only way you're going to learn is failing as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget that. And I say that every year to mm. teachers now, like you need to fail. You need to model that so that we can grow and learn together. So that was something I learned over 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I still remember it to this day. Yeah. Our principal in Rome, Justin Walsh, talked about failing forward. And it's a great mm. metaphor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the second part, we're still on the multi-part question. The second part is, how can school leaders bring about needed change without experiencing initiative fatigue in their staff? Because I know we've all experienced that. This is probably one of the most challenging things as an international school. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I'm not doing a great job where I'm currently at. Where I'm at right now, the turnover is between three to four years. So teachers leave between three and four years. And as we know, we bring in new teachers and we've got to get them into what's happening, where we're going. 
talking about new initiatives. It's very difficult. The easiest way for me, and I remember this when I was in Thailand, I was in Thailand for 12 years. The average length of stay of a teacher in Thailand when I was there was eight years. Attracting and retaining teachers is the best way to prevent that initiative fatigue because everybody is there and they're all on the bus and they're all going forward at the same time. So I am nowhere near there. I'm only in my second year at the school I'm currently at. And there's always new initiatives and we're trying to get things moving. But my goal is to attract and retain teachers so that they stay. So it's not all sorts of initiative fatigue, but we're just learning a little bit. We're building, we're growing so that we can be better together. But when you get new teachers all the time, it becomes much more of a challenge. I remember one model that I thought was fabulous, at least as far as technology was concerned, was at ASB. I went to a couple of the conferences there. I'm talking about in Bombay. And the head of innovation there or technology was Shabi Luthra, whom you may know, I'm not sure, but her thinking was, let's just have two things that are school-wide that everyone needs to know, two platforms or two types of technology. And then let's have no more than two per division and just limit it to that, that we expect everyone to know and know well and allow people, especially people coming in new, to just learn those couple things and not stress the rest kind of thing. And I thought that was a really nice model. Yeah, that's a great model. We try to limit the amount of initiatives here. The problem is the people that come and go, and that becomes very difficult. One of the things that we find here is we're a CGC school, Common Ground Collaborative. You've got PYP, MYP, IBDP. We've got CGC now. You've got ILP. There's all sorts of different programs out there. And when teachers move from school to school, there's a lot of relearning that needs to happen. And I find that's very challenging. I would love to look for teachers that have CGC experience. I can tell you right now, because CGC is so new, there are no teachers that have CGC experience. So everybody that comes in, we got to start with that at the square one and keep moving from there. It's a challenge. And connecting to this, I'll take us back to Riyadh again. What an incredible school that was. And I think we all can agree on that. And wonderful programming from the arts to physical education to like even in the middle school photography and a little bit of a maker movement starting out. And some of those were very connected to the teachers who created them and led them. And so it's the age-old question of when they move on, what happens to those programs? So that kind of leads us into our question of what suggestions do you have on systematizing and sustaining new practices mm-hmm. so that four or five years later, an initiative comes up and people go, didn't we just do that five years ago? This is an excellent question. And I think we've been around international education long enough that we've seen things sort of come full circle now. And I think it needs to belong to the school. And I'm a big systems person. So when I come into a school, we put those systems in place. You know, when I first started overseas, there wasn't even the internet. So that was very difficult. But now we've got places to store things, to put those systems in place so that we know. And I'll give you an example because we were talking about it the other day in my leadership team meeting is we've got student-led conferences coming up in April. Student-led conferences, very common across most international schools. But what does that look like here at ICSA? So we've got a format. It's all laid out. I love to talk about essential agreements. So we create, you know, what are those essential agreements that every teacher agrees to when we're doing a student-led conference? What does that look like? Kids are going to set goals. Kids are going to be leading those conferences. The parents are going to be reflecting on those conferences afterwards. We've got a reflection sheet. So we lay all of that out and make it very clear, but systemizing it and putting it in a place. And we have Google Drive. We use shared drives at our school and everything is there. So if I were to leave, I'm leaving a legacy of what this looks like. And this is what happens next time. Well, Heather, that's something that I really have always been drawn to as well. And I think I might just want to come and work for you because that is something that I have complained about at other schools. 
there just isn't a system for this or that or the other. Why can't it be there? So I love that you said that. Uh, and it sounds like you don't waste time in meetings either. You know, the number of times all of us have been to meetings where it's informational. Why? Let's have a meeting where we're making progress, where we're, like you say, putting systems in place. And I love that you said you get input from people, common agreements. I think that's so important because now you've got the buy-in and people feel like they're part of something. So boy, you're really impressing me. If this was a job interview, I'd be like, let's hire her. <laughs> so what other changes come to mind, either maybe that were recent, but already in place pre-COVID and of course, due to the pandemic? So I think one of the big things that I'm really focusing on here and in previous schools as well, that I didn't really think about before is thinking about one's thinking. Hmm. So we're really focused on that reflection piece. The kids are self-assessing. They're looking at where they are on a continuum. We want to know how the kids are thinking about their thinking and teachers. Gone are the days, are we saying, you know, I'm going into a classroom and I'm going to assess you as a teacher and this is where you fall. Those days don't exist anymore. So let's look at goals. Let's set goals. Let's see where you are. Are you able to meet the goal? How can I help you meet those goals? What do you need to work on? Because if it doesn't come intrinsically, then it's not going to happen. We all know that. So I think that that whole piece of metacognition, and I really want to do a deeper dive next year at my current school in terms of even defining what does metacognition mean to us at our school? We're doing it, we're reflecting and all of that, but let's take it one step further and let's put together a definition and figure out what that means because the reflection piece to me is probably one of the most important things. And I started working on metacognitive processes before COVID and now we're almost at a place where we can actually identify it here. We do reflect, but we really haven't called it metacognition. Well, and as research on the brain shows, reflecting on debriefing, expressing how an experience made you think and feel is the best way to retain that learning. So that's great to hear too, yeah. All right, let's move on to the second part of the guiding question where we want to hear what are, well, we talked a little bit about trends at the start, but what are some trends that are forming? They're just getting going. And what are some that are already in play when you talk to other administrators and other educators around the world? So I know we talked a little bit earlier about the DEIJ trend and that I have to say, if schools out there do not have a DEIJ statement and it's not on their website, then there might be cause for concern because we really need to make sure that everybody in the school community feels a sense of belonging. We need to make sure that that diversity, that inclusion is happening at all of our schools. So that's probably the first part is looking at your DEIJ practices. What are your practices for hiring people? that are not just from America? Are you looking at people of color? Are you looking at people that are not Americans? One of the things that intrigued me the most here at ICSA, when I was hired here, there were 24 different nationalities on staff. I've worked predominantly at schools that are American, Canadian, British, Australian, Kiwi staff, that's it. So this was really interesting because for me, diversity is very, very important. So the DEIJ movement, I think, is important. We're doing a lot of work at our school around DEIJ, and I know a lot of schools are. I'm involved in a lot of workshops outside of our school. That is probably the thing that I think is the most important is DEIJ. The other area that I'm noticing, I had the luxury of talking to a lot of people in Boston. One of the areas that at a higher level we need to really consider is school board training. And I know we haven't talked about that, but what we're dealing with in schools and my board as well is that parents are voted in or they are assigned by the U.S. Embassy and they don't have any training. So they think they know about schools because they went to school. Mm -hmm. And as we know, that's not true. I would never go to a dentist that hasn't had any training. And so school board training seems to be a real push right now. 
If you look at the PTC, the Principal's Training Center, they're offering a lot of board training. We did a board training, so with the senior leadership team and the board with the trainer that came in in August. We've got another trainer coming in in March looking at our strategic plan with, again, the board. They need training. Just because they're a parent doesn't mean they know how to run a school. And I think a lot of schools are understanding and realizing, wow, we really need to have our board trained because in many instances, our boards change every two years. Somebody comes and somebody goes. And it's something that is desperately needed. And I'm glad that PTC and other organizations are starting to offer more of that training so that we can empower our board to be good board members. You know, I never thought about that. That makes so much sense. Let me add to that. The School Rubric Group, which is a fantastic organization that puts out a lot of great information, they dedicated an entire podcast episode to this discussion and had a board panel. So you can either look them up on the web or come to our website. They are in our web resources library. So check that out. I'm definitely going to check that out. So I'm going to get us started, and Audrey's going to finish this off going into the next question. As a counselor, as a part of Student Support Services, it's intriguing to hear about how much your school is expanding that department to support a wider range of student learning needs. Because as we were talking off mic, in the early days, potential Americans or Canadians, foreigners coming to wherever one is in the world to that school they have to fill out a questionnaire on whether their children had learning struggles or not. And sadly, in many cases, families could not come because schools could not provide that support. So what's it like out there trying to find, are there enough learning support teachers? And when I say learning support, you can divide that into several groups. So what did you see in Boston and London? That's an excellent question, and I can say there is a real need for learning support teachers. So when you go into sort of the ballrooms where everybody lines up and puts their jobs on a a paper, most schools, not all, but most schools were looking for learning support teachers. So there is a real need for more learning support teachers. If I was to do this all over again, my younger self, I might have gone back and become a learning support teacher because there is a desperate need as schools become more inclusive to make sure that we are meeting the needs of all students so that they can all be successful. And we're missing it. So that is an area that is desperately needed. Well, I'm glad to know that you were able to fill the positions that you had, despite adding three more learning support people and the dearth of candidates out there. So well done. You're a powerhouse recruiter. Pretty much you've answered the next question I had, but do you have anything more you want to talk about with the increasing competition out there as there are more and more schools and how that's affected the recruiting scene? You know, I think one of the things, and I think this is why your podcasts are instrumental actually for new educators, because I have spent a lot of time, I have a friend that will say, hey, Heather, will you talk to this person about recruiting and what that looks like? Even in Boston, I had a friend that I used to work with in Thailand, and she had a friend that she worked with in Moscow. And she said, Heather, I know you're there. Can you give her some advice? And I'm all for giving advice. I love to do that. But I think people are entering, because there's just so much out there, people are entering this minefield and not knowing where to go, not knowing where to find the information. So that's why these podcasts are really important because we have to share the experiences. Where do you go? There are a lot of schools, and you can see that, that are a little bit sketchy. They get you, they do things, they keep your passport for weeks on end, they don't pay you on time. And how do we get people to look at some of those better schools? I would say personally to spend the additional money, sign up with ISS, search, scroll, Forget some of those lesser known places that are, you know, it's free to sign up and we'll find you a job. Well, you don't know what kind of job you're going to get. And if you've never done what we've done, you don't know what you're looking for. So the more information that people can do, the more research that they can do, the more people that they can talk to, the better off they're going to be able to get a quality job in a decent school. I will say for new educators overseas, Sometimes you have to do two years at a school that might not be where you want it to be, but get your foot in the door 
and then move on. So it's doing that research. It's listening to your podcast. It's looking at tie online, the newspaper, doing all of that on your own, I think is so important. Well, thank you for the plug. We obviously totally agree with you. <laughs> and I will just add to that, that we are now seeing people present themselves and their services as consultants, where they kind of help you with that whole piece of formatting your resume in a way that it is helpful in terms of getting hired in an international school, of helping you filter through all the job openings that are out there and figure out about the schools and then prepare for interviews and so on. So we've been working quite a bit with a consultant, Jacqueline Malay, and I actually have her working with some neighbors of mine, Aussies, who have said, A, that she's fantastic and that it's really good value for the money, and B, they applied for a job and the person on the other end said, this is the best resume I've ever seen. So what great plugs for that. So that's just another piece I'll add on to what you were saying about researching and figuring the whole thing out is consider, you don't have to, but consider hiring a consultant just to have that extra little bit of handholding and experienced help in judging. Like you say, are these a fly-by-night school or are they a more high-tier school? And if I can piggyback on that as well, one of the things that I've learned in my role is take a look at hiring a coach. You know, there's a lot of coaches out there that will coach you through what some of those interview questions are going to look like, coach you through to better understand who you are. And I think that's a great value for money as people are looking to seek new jobs in other countries. Yeah, absolutely. And connecting to that, I'm spending some time on Reddit and specifically the subreddit about international schools. And I was just sharing a thread yesterday with Audrey. And what's intriguing to me is just so many folks are just lost. They might be getting a bid, they might be getting an offer here, or they're not getting any responses and they are lost. And that's to what both of you are saying, hire that coach. Do all the research, of course, as we all are saying, but find someone who can handhold to some degree. Some are going to only need a light touch. Some are going to need a lot more. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind. It's a lot more complicated, it seems to me, the whole recruiting scene than where we were even 10 years ago. Uh, it's just so much more dynamic. And as you're pointing out, Heather, there's so many schools out there. And we're going to talk in a minute about the tiers, a little bit more about that. To, to give people more knowledge on that. So I had a question on demographics and I'm putting you on the spot because it isn't like you're going up to 50,000 feet and can see the whole world of international schooling. But I'm wondering what the demographics look like just in age. Is it a lot of 25 up to 35? And are you getting, especially from Canada and the U.S., pensioners, people who have gotten their pensions in their public schools, but are now coming overseas. So can you paint that picture a little bit for us? Yes, we're getting both ends of the spectrum. We've actually hired some of those people that are retiring in America and Canada. So they're drawing a pension and they want to try something different. So we are getting that. And we are also getting those younger first time overseas people. So I think there's a huge range one of the things in terms of hiring that we like to do is to make sure that we have everything at our school. So we've got some of those, you know, maybe they only have three or four years experience all the way up to, we've got people that have, you know, 25 to 30 years experience. I think it's important to have that balance because those younger teachers need those teachers that have been around for a while as mentors. And it's also nice to have those younger teachers be able to maybe teach the older teachers a new trick or two. <laughs> so keeping that balance, I think, is really, really important. And I've seen in my recruiting, uh, we have interviewed anyone from, you know, sort of that 24-year-old age up to 65. We're lucky we're at a school where we don't have that age limit. Some schools like in China have an age limit. You know, you can't go beyond 60. So we can hire older faculty members, but I think they bring a lot of maturity. They bring something different to the plate. And if they want to come to Africa and are flexible, it's a great place to be. That's so great. 
I love that you really do have a focus on the whole diversity piece. And I think it will pay dividends because when you talk about the collaboration, the more variety of ideas and perspectives you can get, the better the collaboration. So it really just all makes sense and everybody moving forward together. And also, as you mentioned in the last episode that we had together, kids seeing teachers that look like them, and that includes all kinds of things, you know, not just ethnic groups, but as you mentioned before, LGBTQ plus people, you know, maybe a lesser abled people, physically abled people and so on. So that's and older and younger and the whole, you know, the whole mix. So well done. Bravo. Well done. And for all the social issues that we're saying are so important, I'm going to be the harsh capitalist here and wondering if there are going to be some changes in hiring practices because there are not enough applicants. As you just touched on, some countries have work visa age limits. And then within some countries, it's different to different schools. I was looking at Thailand, where you were, at a few schools that the age was higher and some it was lower. So that's one thing. I'm wondering if there's going to be pressure by these some of these very powerful international schools, higher tiered ones, to try to raise those limits within their countries. And then that trend that started so many years ago where you might have 25 years experience, but you're going to come in at step eight. And I'm wondering if some schools are going to have to respond and go, guess what? We're going to have to pay these veterans more to get them to come to our school. So what what do you have to say about that? So I'm going to elaborate on the second point that you just made there about coming in. That is an issue that I think a lot of schools face. My school faces that you can come in and step seven. It's a big issue across the world. A lot of schools have this, you know, you can only come in at a certain step. And it is preventing some people from coming to the school. We are in the midst right now of doing a big salary and benefits overhaul. We're looking at all the schools in Africa. We are mid-range right now, but we want to raise that because we want to attract and retain the best people. So that's something that we're working on with the board and we're hoping to get something approved for next year. But the steps coming in on the steps is huge. So schools that can up those steps, you know, even to step 15 would make a huge difference for some people. Because there is such a shortage of international educators, I think in China, they're dealing with this. And I've got a couple of people that are going off to China next year. And they were just grasping, like, please come to us. Please come to us. They're really going to have to look at that 60-year-old limit right now because COVID has changed the landscape of China as well. People are not as excited to go to China anymore. They don't know what the next thing, you know, uh, the next outbreak might be and what the lockdowns might be. So people are leery to do that. In the last couple of years, and I've heard this, you know, I was at ISB Beijing and they've said they've had to hire people locally because people were leaving and they couldn't get work permits to get people in. So they've hired people they might not have necessarily hired if it was an open market. So, you know, keeping that quality at a certain level is going to be a challenge. So I would say they might need to raise that from 60 to 65. And we're showing as well now that 60 is not what it used to be 40 years ago. People are living longer. People are wanting to work longer. And if we've got the energy and we can do all of this, then why not employ people? It doesn't make any sense to me. And luckily, I'm at a school where there really is not much of an age limit. Locally, it's 60, and then we can keep them on as contracted and expat at 65. And again, we can keep them on as contracted. So we really don't have that problem here. And I'm thrilled that we don't. All right. So the schools that you're talking about in China saying that they are really almost desperate to get people to go to China, what do you think is behind all of that? I know China for a long time had a zero COVID policy and they were in serious lockdown. Now they've opened up and people are really starting to get sick and they're under vaccinated. Is there more to it than that? Or what other pieces of the puzzle are there? I think COVID. I mean, I'm just be blunt. And we have teachers that came from China to here. I do know that China was very actively recruiting some teachers here to get them to go to China. They've got great packages. 
there's a lot that there is to offer, but it's the unknown right now of China. It's a risk. Do you go to China and take the great package and maybe they lock down again? You just don't know. So it's going to be interesting to see how things play out in the next year. I know they've hired a lot of people. A lot of people have left. I've known a lot of people in China. They have just said, I can't do this anymore because I just don't know what it's going to be. I have a friend that left this past Christmas because it just opened up and she'd been locked down in China for three years, saw no family. That's not what we signed up for. Um, we all hmm, signed up to go overseas. Time. Yeah, it's a long time. We signed up to go overseas, have new experiences, meet new people, but not be locked in one country where we can't see our parents. I have known people in China where family members have passed away and they can't get back to say goodbye. Those are huge issues. And that will stay with people forever. That won't leave them. Yeah, I know it was the same for friends in Singapore that they were faced with the decision of, do I go home for this very sick parent or funeral or what have you and risk not be able to get back in? And it's a real issue. Yep. And you're already so far away. Reality. Yeah, you're so far away from your family as it is. And then to be refused the right to leave and come back, it's got to be very, very stressful. And to add to this social economically, to appraise it a little bit to our listeners who are just beginning to come overseas, China in so many ways was the main growth market for international schools, right? Mm -hmm. Left and right, mm -hmm. there were schools sprouting up in, in, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, I guess maybe longer with the expansion of Shanghai. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. And a lot of big name schools, not just middle or lower tier schools. So that's where a lot of people were going. And I'm almost visually seeing all these people going there, seeing a flow chart, but now so many are leaving and Heather, a friend of mine's there, and he said the exact same thing. They're hiring many more local folks. So I'm guessing a repercussion of this is maybe this year or in last year, there are more people coming out of China who might have wanted to stay there, but they're making it a little bit more competitive for top-tier hires outside of China. Did you see that to some degree or hear about it? Not this year as much as I did last year. Mm -hmm. So last year, again, fairs were virtual. It was much more challenging. We didn't have the face-to-face. -face. But last year, I interviewed a number of people wanting out of China. That was it. They didn't know where there was an end. This year, I didn't see it as much, especially when it opened up. I guess people were saying, well, we like it here. We might just stay a little longer. We can come and go. But last year, I did see in the international pool, a lot of people just wanting to say, you know what? I've had it. I'm out. I want to go somewhere else. And it did kind of inundate the market. There were many more teachers out there. And this year, I'm just not seeing the same. That makes total sense. So we're going to see how it goes. And as a social studies teacher and a political junkie, <laughs> I have to throw the wet blanket out there on what's going to happen between mainland China and Taiwan. And I wonder what it's been like in Taiwan this past year as well in hiring. But we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. That might be a future episode. So continuing along and looking at trends, if you can describe when we look at low turnover and which schools have high turnover and what factors are in play so that our newbies can get a better understanding when they see a lot of people, a big long list when they're at a recruiting fair and there was a lot of turnover in a school, what are some factors that lead to that kind of turnover whether it be in a higher tier or maybe a lower tier school? So there are a lot of factors why people leave. I have to say, I think the first factor that people leave is that they don't feel respected, valued, and there's a disconnect with the school administration. That's probably the biggest area that I'm seeing if there is, going back to what I was talking about earlier, that relationship, that the administration builds a relationship, gets to know them, they have decent housing, they are taken care of. That initiation week for new hires is probably the most important part of an entire school year. You're bringing people over for the first time to a new country, and you are getting them used to the country, you're getting them used to the school, to the culture, 
So a lot of that, and this is what I'm dealing with exactly right now, is that onboarding. You know, making sure that onboarding before they get here. So a number of things that we're doing. I've already sent out numerous emails, welcoming everybody, getting them introduced to one another. You're the class of 2023-2024. Getting everybody to share their emails. I'm working on buddies right now. We do two buddies. We do a personal buddy and a professional buddy. So they have two different people that they can reach out to. We will start in March with regular Zooms. So we'll get everybody on a Zoom so they can see, ah, that's the new art teacher. Oh, that's going to be the new third grade teacher. We have a new hire handbook that outlines, you know, what's healthcare like here? What, where do you buy your groceries? What does that look like? So there's a lot going on. One of the things that one of the new teachers this year said, we need to have a website where the new teachers can just sort of ask questions and those questions might be relevant to everyone. And I said, great idea. So I am also enlisting the help of people that have just come in, like, how can we improve this onboarding so that it's a better experience for the next person? That's fantastic. Cause I mean, I've had horrible onboarding experience, like my first job in Ethiopia, where I wrote and asked the previous teacher, what's the name of the textbook? So I could get familiar with it ahead of time. And he wrote back and he said, there's nothing here. He was a French teacher. He said, courage, (laughs) (laughs) meaning good luck sucker kind of thing, you know? And it was like, and then I've had wonderful Riyadh as we all thought and Singapore American where they took us out and showed us around and helped us get housing, et cetera, et cetera. So I agree. That's a very important point that the onboarding process is so key to people's experience. Oh, and I should say, I love the idea that you do Zoom calls ahead of time. Way to start building the community, the trust, the collaborative atmosphere, you know, right from the get. That's fantastic. What a great idea. All right. So we have another multi-parter for you, Heather. (laughs) And we may be able to really dig in here because this is related to your thesis work. Let's start with the construct of international schools being kind of informally ranked in tiers. And we've referred to this already in this episode, but with your dissertation, looking at quality international high schools, what's your take on what it means to be a top tier international school? So when I was working my PhD, one of the things that resonated with me was what does a top tier international school look like? We keep hearing it over and over again. Well, this is a top tier. This is not a top. This is kind of the next tier. And it's like, what does that mean? And so I decided to take that on. And it was a big study. But I decided to take that on and figure out what are the characteristics of a quality international high school. Now, I narrowed it down to high schools. Even though I'm working in a lower school or elementary school right now, I narrowed it down to high schools because I really felt that that's where the need was at the time. Like, let's look at our high schools and let's figure out what it looks like. So I did my study in Aircoast, which is the East Asia region of international schools. And I did a mixed methods study. So what that means is I sent out a survey to all the Aircoast schools and I had a very good return rate. I had 375 surveys returned, which is great. I believe it was something like 43% return rate. So that was good for a dissertation. Yeah. And then I conducted 20 interviews, 10 interviews with school administrators and 10 interviews with teachers. And when I put all this together and did all my analysis of everything, I was able to come up with six school quality characteristics. That's what I ended up calling it in my dissertation. So you're not going to be surprised because a lot of what we were talking about earlier are these six. So I'll just read you the six. The first one, I'm doing them in order as well, just so you know, there is an order. The most important one was having a supportive school climate. So that kind of goes back to the trust, being able to work with the administration, the school leadership, having that support and having that climate there was very important. The second one was having that collaborative school culture where teachers felt that they were working together on curriculum, on projects, that they weren't working in silos. And that was really important. The next one, didn't surprise me either. It is quality teachers. People want to make sure that they're having quality teachers. And that's a whole nother podcast, but that is very important to people in Aircoast. Did I just hear you say you're coming back? 
No. Yes. <laughs> I, you heard it here, folks. Another podcast. <laughs> it's a whole topic on its own. The fourth one was having multiple student learning opportunities. So making sure, especially in a high school, that there was a variety of pathways to success. When I was an administrator in Thailand, we used to talk about pathways to success. There is more than one pathway to success. Being an IBDP is not the only pathway to success. So understanding each child and making sure that there are there multiple opportunities for success. So that was also an important one. The fifth one, which I found very interesting, was effective and competent school leaders. And this was coming from teachers. Yep. Yeah, right? We've all worked for some that are a little less than effective, but this is so important. They want to make sure that they're effective, but not only effective, but competent. And so that came out loud and clear. And the last one, and we grew up sort of in that age where sometimes when people were backpacking and they could speak English, they got a job at an international school. <laughs> people are saying now that's not okay. They want credentialed school administrators and teachers. So where is your credential? And especially for school leaders, sometimes you're a teacher and just because you're good with people, you might get a job. Well, where is that credential? Where does that show that you are now able to lead a group of teachers? So those are the six characteristics of school quality. And I really do think that it sums up a lot of what we've been talking about. But that does, if you align that with some of the schools that we consider top tier, they're all doing this. Well, and what I hear you doing at your school lines up with all of those things very nicely. So it sounds like that school is lucky to have you. Thank you. So connecting to student enrollment and tiers of schools, we're figuring that top tier schools are probably still able to hire all the faculty they need despite the effects of the pandemic. But what about mid and lower tier schools? Do you hear of them struggling or are they able to hire all the faculty they need? I know you talked about China struggling, but anything else in terms of, just like we've said, there's so many more schools now than there were. How's that affecting those sort of mid and lower tier schools in their hiring? Personally, I think it does have an effect on them right now because the pool is much smaller. And we talked a lot about this when I was in Search Boston. There's a lot more job fairs. If you take a look even 10 years ago, let's go back 10 years. The job fairs were kind of finishing around February, if you recall. So sort of by the end of February, you had the University of Northern Iowa fair. You had the search fair in San Francisco. You had a search fair on the East Coast. You had ISS fairs. And they were all ending. The last fairs were in February. Mm -hmm. If you take a look now, you've got search fairs that are going into March, search fairs that are going into April, ISS fairs. You've got a search fair that even goes into June a few years ago. I remember seeing that. So there are struggling and a lot of the mid to lower tier schools are the ones that are going to be attending those fairs because they're still looking for teachers for next year. I think some of the higher schools are ending January as a good time to be finishing up with your recruiting because then you can start with that onboarding piece. Looking for a teacher in May and June is not fun. And for extenuating circumstances, we've all had to do it. You know, somebody's got a sick parent, they've got a break contract at the last minute. And especially here, and even when I was at other schools, you know, we're very empathetic to that. If you've got an extenuating circumstance, we will support you 100% so that you can go and do what you need to do. We're not saying just walk away from the job. We don't do that. But if there's something, it's really important to take care of people as people. But then you're looking for teachers in May and June, and that is much more challenging. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Very dynamic scene out there in the world of international schools and <laughs> recruiting, as we keep coming back to, for sure. So I kind of want to add one more to your list of top-tier schools, and it shows my bias. I call them co-curricular. Mm -hmm. They're part of the curriculum. They're after-school programs. They're sports. They're the arts that we've been, all three of us, at schools that just have these pretty phenomenal programs to expand the learning beyond just the classroom. So that to me is the cherry on top when you can find a school that has a strings program, for example, in the elementary school. Like, yes. wow. Yeah. Holy and I cow. think Audrey can attest to this as well. Today, we just had Dakar 
is arriving any minute here for our cool. Yeah, they're coming. And tomorrow we start with our opening ceremonies for our math and robotics Weisel uh, um, yes. weekend. Yes, Weisel, fun stuff. All of that fits into it. And I think that fits into number four that I said earlier, the multiple student learning opportunities. All of that is really important as we move forward. And one of the things that I was able to do when I was in Thailand, and we don't do that here yet, is in the high school, we were offering independent study. So if students were interested in learning something that we didn't offer, if they found a teacher that could be their mentor, we could offer that as a credit. We did student internships as well. I remember going to Singapore American School many years ago when Tim Stewart was in charge of innovation at the time. Yeah, yeah. And he took, yes, he walked me through what they were doing with innovation at Singapore American School. And it just really sparked. I was like, wow, we need to offer a lot more for our students. And we need to make sure that we're having these offers so they can be successful and pursue their passions. And so I wholeheartedly believe in all of that. And I'm looking forward to meeting these kids at our school tomorrow from the Weisel schools to do this math and robotics competition. That's going to be a blast. And that connects to building that learning community that's innovative, right? That people on your staff go out and they learn about a program and they come back and say, I'm fired up. Yes. Why don't we have this? And you look at them and go, well, are you ready to be the leader on this? So it <laughs> offers that pathway for their personal growth. And then connecting back to our united love for building systems, that whatever that new program is, it's just not identified with that teacher. It becomes a part of the school culture and their directions and structures. So when that person leaves, the program continues on and thrives. So that's huge. All right. So we're at the point where we ask, is there anything else that you would like to share? You have been incredible. And like I said in our previous show, I love these big topic questions and trends and what's happening out there from the 30,000 foot view. So Heather, thanks so much. And is there anything else that you would like to share with us? Uh, no, it's been great to be part of two different podcasts now, and I've enjoyed sharing my thoughts, opinion, research today. That has been amazing. And I think it's really important that we share what we know with others so that they are well-informed as they venture in maybe a new career. We're fortunate that we've been doing this for years, and we have our expertise to share with others. And I just say it's been a great lifestyle, and we've all raised children overseas, and our children have all benefited from that. And I will say a little aside here. When I was in Boston, it was very cool as I watched a young man walk into the room for signups. And that young man's name was Noah Knobloch. Ooh. And we all worked. Yeah. And I went over and I said, Noah. And <laughs> Noah's the same age as my son, Justin. I was pregnant with his mother. So it all comes full circle sometimes. And he got an amazing job. He's off to International School Manila. We got that Yay. job in Boston and it's so exciting to see, you know, I'm in touch with other people that we know. Simon Felice is in Dubai. Yes. So it's great to watch our kids, friends now doing what we did. And to me, that's a big part of the joy of what we do and helping them get started and watching them flourish as young adults. That's fantastic. I love it. Well, thank you. I reiterate what David said. Thank you so much for being on again. And I know you're coming back because we heard you promise, but, <laughs> but uh, for coming on again, do you want to just quickly share how people can reach out to you if they would like to know more about DEIJ, about your school, about your thesis work? Uh, yeah, anything. I'm always happy to talk to people. The best way to reach out to me is on my LinkedIn. It's very simple. It's Heather Narrow. And I'm checking my LinkedIn all the time. So feel free to ask to be my friend, send me a private message. That is always there. My email is very simple. It's heather.narrow at icsabijan, A-B-I-D-J-A-N.org. So I'm happy to help people. I've worked with a lot of people over the years, a lot of younger people that are trying to break into this world of international education. And I'm happy to help. And I want to go back to your friend that was working on resumes. That is probably the most important piece of getting your foot in the door, having that resume that stands out amongst the others. JPMintConsulting.com. Yeah. And 
we've got two episodes up on going through. It's kind of a case study on how a coach works with a client. So folks, check that out as well. So Heather, we are going to give you a break before we call you back on. And I think we need to distance you and Audrey because I'm hearing Audrey talk about wanting to go back to work and work <laughs> at your school. And Audrey, you are not allowed to go back to work. You have a job and that job is working with me. We are partners. We're in this our, together. Eh? Our podcast. Yeah, we are. So none, none of that work stuff unless it's for educators going global. All right. We've got that cleared up. So Heather, Super discussion. You covered so much. Thank you once again. And we, as folks on the sideline, really appreciate hearing about a school like yours. That seems like such a wonderful place to be, such a great community and a place where innovators can go and thrive. So thank you, Heather. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you again for having me a second time. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for joining us today on Educators Going Global. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all the other usual suspects. Please subscribe, like us, and leave a review on Apple and Spotify, and let your teaching friends know about us so we can grow our community. Please reach out at educatorsgoingglobal at gmail.com and join our Facebook group, Educators Going Global, if you have ideas, comments, or wish to share a Going Global story of your own. You can also find us on Instagram at Educators Going Global. Please visit our website as well, www.educatorsgoingglobal.com. All our podcast episodes are on there by topic, along with blog posts, Going Global stories, and our ever-growing resource library. For now, this is Audrey. And David. Inviting you to travel, teach, and connect with us.